0: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B2, Rex Socius Amicusque. When Juba was four, a comet blazed across the sky for a full week. No one in Rome could have guessed that it may have been the brightest daylight comet ever seen, or that once it left, it would never return. All they knew was that it proved beyond a doubt that Julius Caesar had become a god. If Juba was too young to remember the sight, he'd still recall it as a time of change. Mainly, it meant moving to a new household, which, over the next few years, began to fill with young children. The paterfamilias was a man named Marcellus, and the children born to his young wife Octavia were named in the traditional manner, Marcellus for the boy, and Marcella, major and minor, for the two girls. Juba learned from an early age that his own role was unique. Juba's father, also named Juba, had been king of a land called Numidia. He was told that when his father died, his land had been adopted by Rome, and his son put under the care of one of Rome's leading families, which was a nice way to put things, and close enough to the truth. In 40 BC, when Juba was eight, Marcellus died. The marriage had lasted 14 years, and Octavia mourned his loss. But a few months later, it was announced that Octavia was remarrying. She told the children that their new paterfamilias was a man of great power and renown. His name was Mark Antony of Rome. Antony brought with him two sons by a former wife named Fulvia, who also recently died. The boys, Antillus and Julius, were both nearly Juba's age. The next year brought Antonine Octavius' first daughter, Antonia, which meant the household now had seven children, all under nine years old, which made things a bit hectic when Antony announced later that year that they were all moving from Rome to Athens. The large mansion Antony owned there became the setting for a series of extravagant parties, attended by local friends and other Greek and Roman notables. One of the first events was held to celebrate some early victories of Antony's general Ventidius against the Parthians. Antony clearly seemed to relish his new Athenian lifestyle. If anything, he seemed eager to go further east and join Ventidius. In contrast, Octavia's thoughts were always of Rome. In 37 BC, when Juba was eleven, Antony announced that they were all returning to Italy, at least temporarily. From what Juba could gather, it had something to do with Octavia's brother, Octavian, and some troops he'd promised Antony for the Parthian campaign. Jupa also learned, probably to his excitement, that they'd be sailing alongside a vast armada of 300 warships. Antony's fleet first put in in Brindisium, but quickly set sail again for the city of Tarentum. When they arrived, Octavia, who was pregnant at the time, informed the children that she was traveling to meet with her brother and would return soon. Several days later, Juba watched in amazement as a large Roman army entered and occupied Tarentum. There could be little doubt that the army was Octavian's. Juba had surely met Octavian during their stay in Rome, and must have been confused at how such a young man was considered Antony's equal. Then again, the huge army at his back pretty much spoke for itself. Over the next few days, Antony, Octavian, and their friends and colleagues engaged in a series of meetings, both aboard ship and in Octavian's camp on shore. The atmosphere was generally convivial, and each party seemed satisfied with the eventual outcome. Soon, Octavia informed the children that they were returning to Rome, in Octavian's company, while Antony went east to fight the Parthians. The only exception was Antony's eldest son, Antillus, now ten years old, who'd remain under Antony's care in Athens. The journey from Tarentum to the capital was uneventful. Octavian had purchased a large Roman estate adjacent to the home of Antony and Octavia because of this, the two households were effectively commingled, and three more children were added to the mix. The first was Octavian's young daughter, Julia, by his previous wife, Scribonia. But there were also the two sons of his new wife, Livia, the infant Drusus and five year old Tiberius. While they often visited the household, both boys were mainly raised in the home of their biological father, Tiberius Claudius Nero. Before long, Octavia gave birth to her second daughter by Antony. Antonia Minor. To all these young children—and that's nine if you've lost count—Juba would grow up playing the role of elder foster brother. In time, he'd grow especially close to Marcellus and Tiberius, and see them both raised as presumptive heirs in Octavian's Rome. But for the moment, they were all still children which, in Octavian's family, meant the best education that money could buy. It's obvious from his later scholarship that Juba took full advantage of the setting. He soon became proficient in a variety of subjects, including geography, history, and linguistics. But two areas in particular seemed to hold his interest. The first was the exploration of the edges of the known world the second was the history of his own country, Numidia. In this regard, he had access to an exceptional source. Asinius Pollio was one of the most distinguished and well-connected men in Rome. 39 years old in 36 BC, he'd already served the Republic as a soldier, tribune, and consul, and recently been granted a triumph for a successful campaign in Illyria. He was also close to both Mark Antony and Octavian. In fact, he'd help arrange their current power-sharing agreement. Polio knew very well the dangers of open conflict between powerful Romans. Thirteen years earlier, he'd fought in the North African theater of Caesar and Pompey's civil war. Serving under the Caesarian general Gaius Scribonius Curio, Pollio had marched against Publius Attius Varus, the Pompeian governor of Africa. The Caesarians defeated Varus, but were soon confronted by his ally, King Juba I of Numidia. Juba's forces overwhelmed and surrounded the Caesarians, killing Curio and capturing several senators who were later executed. Meanwhile, Pollio and a small force managed to escape. After defeating Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus, Caesar and Polio sailed for Africa in late forty seven BC. Pompeian holdouts, led by Marcus Cato the Younger and Sicilius Metellus Scipio, had allied themselves with King Juba I to resist Caesar's domination. A major battle near the city of Thapsus saw Scipio defeated and Juba forced to flee. Wanting to avoid capture, Juba convinced an allied Roman general named Marcus Petraeus to fight him to the death so they could both die with honor. At some point, Caesar took possession of Juba's young son, the two-year-old Juba II. After taking part in Caesar's African triumph, where, according to Plutarch, he was the happiest captive ever captured, Juba was placed under the care of Caesar's family. These are likely the broad strokes Juba might have learned during Pollio's visits to Octavia's villa. As he grew older, Juba would learn many more details about his father, Numidia, and Rome. In Antony's absence, Octavia remained the dutiful wife and mother caring for the children, receiving Antony's friends and clients, and interceding on Antony's behalf with her brother. Octavian was also frequently absent, prosecuting a war in Sicily against Sextus Pompey. Apart from being the son of Pompey the Great, Sextus Pompey seemed to defy easy description. Juba heard him called both Roman general and pirate, and also learned that he'd fought against Caesar in North Africa, alongside Cato, Metellus Scipio, and Juba's father. At the moment, Pompey was de facto ruler of Sicily and Sardinia, with an effective stranglehold on Rome's grain supply. Octavian had fought a major sea battle against him the previous year, lost to bad weather and Pompey's superior navy. Chastened by the experience, Octavian made detailed plans for a second assault in 36 BC. This time, Octavian's naval forces would be commanded by his friend and colleague, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. They would also be coordinated with the African navy of Octavian's ally, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Gathering money from every source he could think of, Octavian had built a brand new fleet armored and scaled up to carry large numbers of infantry. At the same time, 20,000 slaves had been purchased, freed, and trained as rowers in a man-made bay dredged by Agrippa at the port of Baiae. Octavian was not messing around. In August 36 BC, the fleets of Pompey and Agrippa clashed off Mile, in northern Sicily. After a long day's fighting, Agrippa's forces won out, and Pompey's ships were forced to flee. Meanwhile, Octavian had landed his army in nearby Tauromenium, and, when he saw Pompey's battered fleet returning, put to sea to finish them off. Unfortunately, the wounded animal maxim proved true, and Sextus outsailed and destroyed most of Octavian's ships— Octavian himself was wounded and barely managed to make it back to the mainland. Most of his army was stranded on Sicily and had to be rescued by Agrippa. By early September, Lepidus's African navy had arrived in Sicily and the battle was rejoined off the Cape of Naulicus. Both sides were evenly matched at three hundred ships apiece and neither had a clear advantage. But after another slow inexorable grind, Agrippa's forces again won the day. This time Sextus Pompey fled Sicily, and Octavian's ally Lepidus captured his capital of Messana. But, well, maybe ally is too strong a word. By the formal agreements that had created and renewed the second triumvirate, Lepidus was equal partner with Antony and Octavian in ruling the Roman world. But regardless of any agreements, power always came down to who controlled the most legions. At the moment, Lepidus had fourteen, raised from the Roman provinces of Africa and Numidia, which he'd brought to Sicily to take the island from Sextus. And now that they were here, Lepidus thought they just might stay a while. After all, Sicily is so nice this time of year. A few weeks of tense negotiations were finally concluded when Lepidus's legions were induced to defect to Octavian, leaving Lepidus with, well, not much. As a small sign of respect, Octavian sent Lepidus off to cushy retirement and let him keep the mainly symbolic title of Pontifex Maximus. But Lepidus' badly played hand had broken the triple alliance and left Antony and Octavian the unchallenged rulers of East and West. Without knowing any of the details, Juba knew that Octavia's brother was returning to Rome as a conquering hero. Along with the many other honors heaped on him by the senate, Juba was told that Octavian's person, family, and home had been declared sacrosanct, in other words, given the same protection as a tribune against attacks by word or deed. It was an unprecedented honor and elevated Octavian's power and prestige to even greater heights. At the same time, Juba knew that his foster father was marching east against the Parthians. What gifts would the Senate bestow on Antony when he returned to Rome, crowned in glory? Okay, so we all know how Antony's Parthian campaign turned out. And just for a little closure, Sextus Pompey contacted Antony shortly after the campaign, fishing for an alliance. But Antony was in a pretty lousy mood and had him executed. Back in Alexandria, Antony put a lot of effort into hiding his defeat from the Roman public. But Octavian had his sources and started filing information away for later use. 35 B.C. saw the death of the famous Roman historian Sallust. Prompted by his passing, or possibly at the suggestion of family friend Asinius Pollio, Juba went to visit a unique Roman archive. Sallust, like Pollio, had served in North Africa under Caesar. Afterward, he had been made governor of the newly minted Roman province of Numidia. When he eventually returned to Rome, Sallus brought with him the entire state library of Africa, the territory previously known as Carthage, and installed it in the capital. Here, in great detail, was the history of both Juba's people and his own royal ancestors. It was a history he'd quickly devour. In the beginning, there was Massinissa, Juba's great-great-great-grandfather, Before him there were nomadic tribes grazing their herds on land too poor or distant for Carthage to claim. After him there was the kingdom of Numidia, strong ally of Rome, while Carthage had been reduced to smoking ruins. All in his lifetime, and, in no small part, due to his actions— Massinissa was 20 in 218 BC when Hannibal began his legendary march from Iberia toward Rome. While the Numidians had historically been allies of Carthage, the Second Punic War opened up new possibilities, and some aligned their fortunes with Rome. Massinissa's tribal group remained loyal to Carthage and fought the Romans in both Mauritania and Iberia. In fact, Massinus' own cavalry took the life of the Roman general Publius Cornelius Scipio the Elder in 211 BC. But three years later, the Carthaginians were introduced to Scipio's son, the soon-to-be legendary Scipio Africanus. Over the next two years, the young Roman general won two decisive victories that broke Carthage's hold on Iberia. Seeing which way the wind was blowing, Masinissa switched allegiance to Rome. But on his return to Numidia, he discovered that rival tribal groups had switched to backing Carthage. This made for a hostile homecoming, and Massinissa was forced to take to the hills and wait for his next move. Fortunately, he didn't have to wait long. In 204 BC, Scipio landed in Africa— enlisted Massinissa's cavalry and took the fight to the Carthaginians. Early Roman victories pulled Hannibal out of Italy and led to his final defeat at the Battle of Zama. Installed on the Numidian throne by Scipio Africanus himself, Massinissa would go on to rule his new country for the next fifty-five years. His reign was characterized by three main factors— the first was absolute loyalty to Rome, in the role of Rex Socius Amicusque, or the friendly and allied king. The second was an influx of Hellenistic art and culture from both Greece and Ptolemaic Egypt. The third was Massinus's constant provocation of his diminished and virtually defenseless neighbor. Eventually, Carthage took the bait, crossed the line and found itself utterly destroyed in the Third Punic War. At the war's outbreak, Carthaginian forces invaded Numidia, only to be confronted by Masinissa, 87 years young and still leading his army on horseback. In case you're wondering, Masinissa won the engagement. Reading the story of his distant ancestor, young Juba II would find in Massinissa an ideal role model—strong, wise, cultured, and above all, aligned with Roman interests. But the Numidian coin also had a flip side: treacherous, corrupt, and doomed to die a violent and ignoble death. This was the image conjured in the Roman mind at the mention of Masinus's grandson, Juba's great-grandfather, Jugurtha. After a youth spent among Roman nobility in Iberia, Jugurtha and his two brothers, Hempsal and Auderbal, co-inherited Numidia in 118 BC. Jugurtha had a two-part plan for assuming sole kingship. Part one was killing hempsal Part two was bribing Roman senators and commissioners to see things his way in the succession fight with Adderbal. From his youthful experience, Jugurtha had developed a cynical, if not entirely inaccurate, take on Roman politics. Sallust quoted Jugurtha once describing Rome as a city for sale, and doomed to quick destruction if it should find a buyer. Though Jugurtha ended up with the better half of Numidia, it was still only half. Cut to him besieging his brother in his capital of Sirta, a city with a substantial Italian population. When the city finally fell, Jugurtha tortured his brother to death and massacred the population, which pretty much meant game on between Numidia and Rome. Except, of course, that Jugurtha was able to bribe the first consular army sent against him into a favorable truce. More bribery, thuggery, and general bad behavior followed, until Rome finally got serious and sent capable generals to bring him to heel. Even so, the war eventually dragged on for years, and was only ended when Jugurtha's father-in-law, King Bacchus I of neighboring Mauritania, betrayed him to the Romans. After that, it was a brief starring role in a Roman triumph, followed by slow strangulation in the Tullianum. If Juba II ever needed a cautionary tale of how not to rule, he found a glaring example in the story of Jugurtha. By the spring of 34 BC, when Juba was 14, Antony had been gone for well over a year. When the children questioned Octavia, her answer was always the same. He was still in the east, fighting for Rome. But one day she announced she was going to meet him in Athens. She was taking Antony some much-needed items to aid in his campaign, including uniforms, pack animals, money, and 2,000 elite troops she'd obtained from her brother Octavian. When Octavia returned weeks later, she passed along Antony's love and well-wishes to the children, then returned to her routine. It was only outside the household that troubling rumors began to circulate. Antony refused to even meet Octavia in Athens, though he'd been happy to take her gifts. Antony suffered a huge defeat in Parthia, and met with a similar failure in Armenia. And, most shocking of all, Antony'd become the willing slave of an Egyptian queen— He lived in her palace, had fathered children by her, and bestowed on her and them a raft of Eastern titles. He'd even held a triumph in the streets of Alexandria. It was a lot to take in, especially for a teenage boy who'd always thought the world of his foster father While the source of the rumors was never clear, Juba gathered that, at the very least, Octavian gave them credence. A war of words rapidly escalated in the capital, with Antony through messengers, accusing Octavian of keeping Sicily to himself and refusing to settle Antony's veterans there. Octavian countered that if Antony had been so successful in Parthia and Armenia, he should just settle his troops there. And, by the way, he owed half those territories to Octavian. As the months dragged on, and the claims and counterclaims continued to fly, the citizens of Rome slowly gravitated, or were forced, into either one camp or the other and through it all, no one remained more stuck in the middle than Octavia's family. The first major public breach occurred when both Roman consuls, and many senators, left the capital to join Antony in Ephesus. At the same time, several close allies of Antony fled his company and returned to Rome, apparently out of disgust with Cleopatra's behavior. Shortly after they arrived, Octavian made a remarkable speech in the Senate, reading choice excerpts from Antony's will, including his territorial donations and his desire to be buried in Egypt. Any qualms the Romans may have had about how Octavian obtained the will were easily overshadowed by its contents. It was, quite simply, damning, the Senate immediately stripped Antony of all civic authority. But they reserved their sharpest condemnation for Cleopatra. She had corrupted and enslaved a once-great Roman, and turned him against his own wife, his own family, his own people. And now this eastern queen and her illegitimate brood were claiming the right to territories that belonged to Rome. There was only one response if Rome were to retain both her lands and her honor. It would have to be war. Not against Antony or his Roman allies. They were all offered pardons if they'd only abandon their delusions and return to the fold. No, the war was declared against Cleopatra alone. For Juba and the rest of Octavia's family, the outbreak of hostilities was a devastating blow, but it wouldn't be the last. One day, a group of men arrived at Octavia's villa with a message from Mark Antony. They told Octavia that Antony had divorced her and that she and the children were no longer welcome in his home. Seeing his mother reduced to tears, Juba knew that there was no going back. Antony and Octavian were going to war, and one of them was likely about to die.